This is Solastalgia. My name is Sue Ann Harding. My name is Cullen Shaw. And this podcast is a series of stories about accidental environmental activism in Northern Ireland. I first came across the word solastalgia when I was reading Robert McFarlane's book, Underland. And solastalgia is a word that was coined by an Australian professor, Glenn Olbrecht, in 2003. And he defines it as a form of psychic or existential distress caused by environmental change. In this episode, we continue the story of Emma Must and her part in Twyford Rising, the extensive and influential environmental activist campaign that worked tirelessly and imaginatively to prevent the carving of a motorway through the beautiful, mythical Twyford Down. We pick up the story in the summer of 1993, when a civil injunction is served against her by the Ministry of Transport. This is the first time during the direct action campaign, Emma says, that she felt scared and alone. But 76 others had also been served injunctions and they meet on the hill to decide what to do. And we went and sat on the hill. We did, we had, we had a meeting on the hill. Beautiful, I can remember that meeting. Beautiful day, clear blue skies. Summer of 93, early summer. And we said, well, what are we gonna do? A number of us had already researched the potential effects of breaking the injunction. So the Department of Transport took out a civil injunction against us to stop us from walking on Twyford Down. So to stop us from crossing the fence to walk on our hill. That was the deal. A lot of us felt we would break the injunction. We wanted to cross the fence. But we looked into the potential, potential consequences of doing that, which we realised might, at the, in the worst case scenario, mean being given prison sentences. A lot of people who perhaps, people perhaps who were a bit older, who had families and houses and jobs and more to lose, felt they couldn't do that, it was too risky. Absolutely, totally respect that. But we were all having these discussions about what to do. And I think once... I'd personally decided, and there were others who decided as well, that we were going to cross the fence. We were going to defy the injunction. For me, to not have done that would have been giving my permission for that road to slice through the landscape of my childhood. I wasn't going to give that permission. Once we'd made that decision, I, I didn't feel, you know, alone again or or actually fearful again, really, um, and we just got on with it. Consent. That's the word consent that we've spoken about in a previous episode. That they don't ask for consent and you, we don't give them. We don't give you consent to slice through this hill. And even as they are doing it, I think I get that now, even as they are doing it and even when you see that they are doing it, you do not give your consent. So crossing that barrier, that line, and walking on that land that you've been able to walk on your whole life is an act of saying, I, I, do, I do not give my consent. 
I do not. And even as they do it. Yeah, I think that's that. And isn't that the face of um, violence as well? Often you can't stop the violence, but we can say, I do not consent. And in the end, that's a powerful thing. That's a powerful thing. And, and, and actually, nobody can take that away from any of us. We can always say, I did not give my consent and I still do not. So I can really see how you would not be afraid. Once, once you've decided that in your head, I can see how you would not be afraid and that you and your friends would just walk Anne Harper talked about consent. Mm. It's extraordinary the amount of resonances between stories. Just to go back to to the dam, what was it like being so cheek by jowl with those people? Was there ever any interaction? What was it like being up against that sort of presence? Variable is the the answer to that. Sometimes there was quite a lot of banter and, and good-natured you know, conversations and, and chat. Sometimes there was violence. Mm -hmm. There was quite a lot of rough handling. So the, the, the mean level of interaction would be somewhere in the middle, I think. Okay. I, I feel it's really important that I say that I had not taken direct action at all of any kind, up to and including Yellow Wednesday. I, I didn't take direct action on Yellow Wednesday. And I went back to work the following day and the day after that. I can really remember admiring, actually, and being in awe of these people who were just, had been, during the daytime, hurling themselves in front of machinery and people. And I could see, I could witness that how they were in the evening and, you know, bruised and, and bloodied and also defiant and very strong. But that's not something that I was doing at that point. It took for me Yellow Wednesday and the aftermath of that for me to cross that barrier in myself, I think. So very early in January 1993, raise a wire of the encampment of the workers on Twyford Down blocked a public footpath and they put a gate across. And we organised an action to remove the gate very early in January, 93. And I, that was the first time that I took physical direct action. And what I did explicitly was join in trampling the fence. Ran, I ran into the compound and I lay down on the soft grass. And then I waited for the security guards to pick me up, one with on both my arms and one on both my legs, and then carry or drag me back out. And then I'd do it again. And that's what we were doing. And that, as well as crossing the threshold of the fence, there was something about crossing a threshold in myself where I would know that I was going to be manhandled, handled by a man to remove me again from the hill. And taking that action felt very empowering, actually and was surprisingly straightforward once you've done it once. It's not, not that difficult to do it again. But I really remember feeling so glad that I'm quite tall and I'm quite big. And I remember feeling really glad that I was tall and big and I was quite heavy and I was quite hard to shift. So, yeah, a threshold 
it took a threshold. It's a very bodily. It's a it's a bodily thing. Um, it is of the body. Direct action. We're trying to express through language things that are actually either existential or or visceral. Visceral. That's it. So the scarring of the landscapes and all of these landscapes sort of be it Molly Roseway or Knock Ivy or the Downs or you know this sort of scouring and this destruction that somehow kind of gets us that feeling of the powerlessness the fact that there hasn't been consent being given just makes it 10 billion times worse because it's the it's them, them getting on with it well we saw it at a very very tiny level at dawn turning up those men with the chainsaws to mm. take down those trees which which in our little short-lived very for micro thing there are there, there are m- m- echoes there you know the smells and the sounds and the you know the dismay it was just so so strange and but you pushed open that door you managed to i i ha- i didn't i think i remained on the other side of that fence even though technically <laughs> you know i was on the other side of the fence, but I didn't get in the way of any chainsaws. So Anne did, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't, I hadn't hadn't made that step. You write in your chapter about how it comes to you. You know, that idea of activism. Everybody has their moment when they decide or just cannot not do the thing in front of them. And on they go and direct action or your tireless campaigning over those months, whatever it is, but there is no set way to do it. And there is no rule about who should do it and when, and there is no judgment about who does it and who doesn't. So you were saying how some people had families and they went home or there were fewer people on the weekend. That's how it is because people act as they, as it comes to them and they figure out, this is my moment and this is when I'm going to do it. And that is powerful because at that moment, nothing can stop you. Yes, ab- absolutely. And I think, yes, it's this idea of you come to it in your own, your own time and in your own way. And I do think it's very important to say that all of these roles are so important. So direct action is just one thing, and it was just one tactic that we used. Because it was so late in the day, really, and these machines were there and physically gouging out the hill, but the panoply of other things that were going on, one of the campaigners, one of the people that I dedicate my book of poetry to, Stephen Ward, he was a he was um, a man from London. He used to come down, Stephen Ward, Stephen Ward, with his clipboard and record everything that went on. That was his role. He used to get off the train, bring his clipboard and he wrote down everything that went on. That was his role. Chris Gillam, who was one of the founding members of the Friends of Twyford Down, who still, today, he still runs something called the A36, A350 Corridor Alliance, which is a thing that we all set up 30 years ago after Twyford Down to try to stop the roads from Bristol to Southampton from being joined up into a superhighway. 
still runs that today and took very little direct action at all, but was a complete stalwart in that campaign right the way through from a decade or two before it ever got to direct action and still doing that role now to everything else. And so all of these roles are so important. And I think, Colin, you were asking earlier about climate change. I think this is especially important if we're starting to look at climate change. And other people have talked about it being an opera, haven't they, or a symphony, that we all must act in our own way, in our own time, in whatever way feels right to us. Now, that might be direct action. It might be organising a campaign group. It might be writing a poem. It might be walking to work and not driving to work. It might be flying a bit less. It might be eating a bit less meat. It might be being a broadcaster. It might be being a teacher and addressing these issues in the classroom. But with something as nebulous as climate change, I think this panoply of roles is even more important. And they are all of equal value, I think. And if we choose our role, or if it chooses us, in our time, in our way, that's the power thing. Because think about the things that you love. No one forces you to write poetry. You could write it all day, right? So the, so the, so the, the thing that you choose, or the thing that chooses you, and for that moment, that is what I will do, recognizing that I think is really empowering because the things that you choose to do in your way, you're really good at them and you're probably going to be tireless and strong and able in that thing. And if we know, if we knew that about ourselves, I think that's really important because often we're told maybe what to do or or we look at what other people are doing and we think we're not so important or we're not... We can't all be this or, or that. But to find the thing that you choose to do and to do it well and with all your heart for the time that you are giving to that, I like that because I think we can, we can choose to do that. And there's a, there's a real strength in that. And there's a wonderful quote from Oliver Berkman. He used to write this brilliant column in the guardian yeah this column will change your life yes oh yeah this column will change your life before he stopped doing his column he said and i wrote it down because i thought yes this is this speaks to me he says you don't actually serve anyone else by suppressing your true passions more often than not by doing your thing as opposed to what you think you ought to be doing you kindle a fire that helps keep the rest of us warm I, I love that so much because it, it's it's doing your thing, as you were saying, Suan. It's not doing what, what you think you ought to do or what someone else thinks you ought to do. It's very definitely not guilt-tripping anybody, but it's doing your thing in your own time, in your own way, because it's the most important thing to you, and that might change. And so for me, for that period of my life, the most important thing was being an environmental activist and trying to stop that road. And then I went on and I continued being an environmental campaigner for about a decade beyond that. 
we stopped the rest of the roads program, I would like to say. Um, yes, uh, I was <laughs> hoping we, we won't. But, so they didn't stop the motorway, that particular. Yeah. And, you know, I'm never going to drive on a motorway and look at those signs on the gantries that say junction eight, mm -hmm. you know, nine minutes without feeling the pain of mm -hmm. those nine minutes <laughs> because that has, you know, carved its way through a particular landscape. Oh, but, that's, well, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Twyford Down was not saved, but it really did. It, cha it changed the nature of environmental campaigning in the UK. And we, I mean, we realised that this was just one road through one hill. So was, Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister at the time. And in 1989, she announced this thing. She called it the biggest road building programme since the Romans, which was um, a programme of, of over 600 road schemes which would slice through so many of the protected, theoretically protected green spaces in the United Kingdom over the course of the next few years. And so the outrage from what happened at Twyford Down reinvigorated a, a national grassroots alliance that was already in existence, an organisation called Alarm UK, the National Alliance Against Road Building. And then over the course of the next six years, in a series of reversals through a process of more noisy defeats, such as at Twyford Down, at Newbury, for example, and other places, but also many, many, many quiet victories, the Rhodes programme was slowly put into reverse. By this time as well, the NGOs working on environmental issues in the UK were also coming together and working together again under Transport 2000, an organisation at the time. So people like the CPRE and Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace, a whole host of other organisations, they were all working together as well. And this whole movement with the direct action on one hand, conventional, more conventional local groups on the other, plus the environmental movement in the UK working in, in concert. We did, we put the, we stopped the roads programme. By 1998, there were only 37 of the, the road schemes left. That began 30 years ago. That's kind of 25 years ago by the time it was put into reverse. By my calculations, even today, the pendulum has only swung back about halfway in real terms. I mean, just this week, the uh, Welsh government have scrapped all of the, the road schemes in Wales. So I think that even today, that you know, the, the, the legacy of, of that time is still felt. So I, that's what I did for a decade, <laughs> along with all of these other people. But for me, uh, we were talking about the thing that you do at any one time. That was what I did then for a decade. And then for me... By 2001, I just, we talked about visceral needs. I had a really visceral need to, to stop trying to stop things being destroyed and to make something, to create something. And I made a very active decision to stop being an activist, to actively focus on, on writing poetry. So that's, I mean, that's 20 years ago. Do you still see yourself as an activist? I know you're a writer. Well, by your own definition, you are, which is... I've got here a definition of activism, which I find quite helpful. The policy or action of using vigorous campaigning to bring about political or social change. 
So that would be a definition of activism. So what I'm engaged in day to day isn't that anymore. So I, I don't really describe myself as an activist. I would describe myself as a poet. But I suppose whilst poetry is not in itself activism, it can do a lot of things that are, I suppose, tangential to it in, in many ways. This is something I've been thinking about so much over the last few years, Sue Ann, and actually meeting the pair of you has enabled my thinking to develop, actually, and actually both of your reactions to Wolf Moon, which I wrote to regain my own equilibrium about that situation, has been really a lot of food for thought for me as well. So I don't describe myself as an activist, but I do think, what can poetry do? What can it do? It, it can bear witness, it can record, it can inform, it can celebrate, it can commiserate, it can stop forgetfulness. And I suppose I've come to understand that it potentially sometimes can be inspiring and it can possibly galvanise. So it may possibly have some activist function sometimes. I think poetry helps us, or doesn't even help us, but poetry can make us see the world in a new way. So that's that moment where you read the poem or the poem speaks to you and you're like, oh, I see the world in a different way. And we've spoken quite a bit on this podcast about seeing the world, that the yellow hard hats and the chainsaw guys see the world in a very different way from what we are seeing. Or the engineers designing their flood alleviation wall see a line of river and a bank and a place where the wall needs to go. So seeing the world and what you see is pretty important. So if poetry makes you see the world in a different way, in a new way, in a way that is going to allow you or, or let you kind of enter that world, that's very powerful. Wonderful. That was so beautifully put, Suan. Yeah, I think I do think one of the powers of poetry is its capacity to pay close attention. Mm. Somebody has called it serious noticing, which mm. I really mm. like. So I like that very much. I like what you said there very much indeed. And I do think one of... The aspects of poetry that can be so powerful is, is this the image, the way in which the image is so motive and so active within poetry can help us maybe see the world in a different way. So potentially can be powerful in that way. And not because you set out the poem to change someone else's mind. So you write Wolf Moon because of your visceral action to those trees being cut down and a year later you share it with the world and there's new images there there is new story around that part of the toy path we'll know it'll be very special to molly rose and her mum well her family when she reads it well that's that's so lovely mm. and i think you're touching on something very important there suan as well is i think one of the times in which poetry doesn't work is if it is too end-focused. It's not a precision tool for change generation. That's one thing it definitely isn't. And I think if you try to make it that, to wrestle it into that shape, it can very often become polemic. 
And speech making is extremely important, I think, but it's not poetry. It's allied to it, but it's not the same thing. And if you try to wrestle poetry into being end-focused, it does become polemical. So, yeah, exactly that. So I wrote the poem not for that purpose at all, and yet it sort of found some sort of resident, resonance. Residence, I like that. <laughs> residence and resonance mm-hmm. a, a year later. So maybe yeah, it works find, in that way. I, it finds its way. Yeah, I like the word accidental because it really does sum up, I think, my approach to this. And it's probably counterintuitive to try and analyse it too much because then... It's no longer accidental. And but this is the lack of intentionality, mm-hmm. just to get a little highbrow for a second. So being bad at something or being just not very good at it and finding your way is as best we can do. This is what we've got. So all of our protests and this podcast, these are just suggestions or just reactions to what we're what we've experienced and trying to make them as accessible and as as honest and not really making any other claim that this is the way we felt and this is what we did. And in a way, I think that there's a gap sometimes in podcasts or discussions that are between committed activists because they agree. And obviously they agree because they have both all feet in the same pot. They're looking from the world all from the same way. But most people don't. And it's everybody else. It's the non-activists, all the other accidentalists who care a tiny bit or just about that. That's the 99% of people. And so by being too focused, by being too intentional, and talking about climate change, obviously for causes that are immediate, like don't close down the Asylum Seekers Centre, yes, you need to be very, 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 very focused. But about social change, because that's what you said activism is, trying to engage with social or political change, then, of course, that needs something much... It's so broad, it's much broader. And I kind of think that maybe being a bumbling, (laughs) kind of useless, let's try this, let's try that, activism is is perhaps something that we could... You know, anybody can have have a go. And you don't know what will happen, but if you're true to yourself, if you're doing the thing that you want to do... Yeah, it will find its way in the world and it will find other people and the other people will find it and, and you. I guess that's a process of trust that those things will happen. Do you ever sit at night and think, I wonder if somebody's reading my book? Because <laughs> they I, are. I, I really don't, actually. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's the thing in itself, isn't it? You, you mm-hmm. do the thing for it for itself. You both emailed me about Wolf Moon, which was really moving, actually, and... It's this idea that a poem has landed in some way. So it's landed in someone else and it has meant something to them. And that is very special when that happens. It's delightful, actually. But I don't, I don't really mind if it doesn't happen. Mm. I, I, don't, I suppose I don't do it for that reason, but it's lovely when it, lovely when it does happen. Yeah, so that's that really act, lovely. Thank you. Act of creation. When you yeah. were talking about, yeah. you know, you chose to stop your activism, which was all about stopping people destroying things. And you made a conscious decision about I will create now and I will be a writer and a poet and I will create. I find that a very strong statement as well because it's like I don't know what will happen with that. I don't know what I will create. I don't know even how it will land or where it will land. But this is how I'm choosing to put my energies. And I also find that very empowering because it's exhausting stopping 
destruction. It's exhausting kind of pitting yourself against the violence that goes around and around in your head, but to choose instead to create. I find that empowering. And even if you don't quite know what will happen, but being true to that decision to do that, that's a very strong way to live. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I really do need to say at this point that, um, so I, I didn't ever mean to become an activist. And it was only because they tried to build that motorway through where I grew up. Poetry was always my thing, always. You know, from when I was really a little kid, I've got a poem in my collection, The Ballads of Yellow Wednesday, one of the very early poems about a tussle with the Writer Badge Award person when I was a brownie, so I'd have been six. And I'd written this poem about, about the teasel, the teasel, this spiky plant that I used to see down by the river. And she said, that's not a word, that's not a word. And I said, it is a word, I've seen them. So I remember I, I obviously was quite argumentative, even as a very small girl. But also, I was re- poetry was my thing. So poetry was always my thing. And I remember... I found a few years ago this kind of life chart plan thing that I'd made, which had on it line, poet, and then there's a huge big leap, a big loop round off the side, which was environmental campaigner, which is what I did, and then an arrow going back forward, back to being a poet again. So I'd always I'd always meant to be a poet, and I, you know, I digressed and I went on this big detour round. But paradoxically, that experience gave me some very important life experience, which has definitely informed my poetry since. I wonder about your statement, the statement in court. Mm -hmm. And I read as well in one of your pieces that you couldn't read it out in court yourself and someone else read it out for you. And that statement I find quite astonishing because, well, I can imagine how terrible that you must have felt at the time and how kind of alone and scared and that someone Mm. else then because you're it's so strong the statement on paper and yet at the time you couldn't bring yourself to to read it because of the circumstances standing there in court yes I couldn't I just I was it's a floods of tears I, I I simply couldn't read it and one of the other one of the Twyford Seven one of the lads um Bob Bear read it for me yeah, I would. I'd be very happy to read it. Yeah, I don't think I've ever read that out. So. Well, yeah. Okay, let's start with the poem. Where the wild things are. Winchester, Wednesday, ninth of December, nineteen ninety-two. I am working in the library, reshelving books. On a hill a mile away, all hell is breaking loose. I skulk in the aisles of the children's section, sticking missing picture labels onto spines. White butterflies fluttering over grassland. Serious owls in the blue of night. Rabbits with bobtails angled cheekily at borrowers. I decide to display the very hungry caterpillar. Then, on a whim, the tiger who came to tea. I have a go on the laminator. The acrid taste of melting plastic film hangs in the corrals. I'll tackle minor book repairs tomorrow. Winchester, Thursday, 10th of December, 
1992. I've hardly slept and smell of wood smoke. All our books are broken and I have no heart for mending. How can I replace these torn end sheets? Fly leaves have been ripped from paste downs. Folded signatures have come unsewn. Joints are bent forever out of kilter. Beaded headbands flap, detached. I am not equipped to glue spines back. I seek out Maurice Sendak's book, those yellow eyes and terrible teeth. Before I can start to write what I have seen. So uh, this is the final paragraph in a chapter I wrote in a book in 2014. The chapter's called Twyford Rising and the book is called Here We Stand, Women Changing the World. And it was edited by Helena Earnshaw and Angered Penryn Jones, published by Hono Press. They're a Welsh publishing house. This is how I end my chapter. I want to end with a word of caution. When you act to try to stop something that you know without question in the depths of your very being to be wrong, when you throw yourself at it with your whole heart and body and soul, when you do this in concert with others who feel the same, it is going to make waves to make change happen. It is inevitable. This is because the people responsible for the things you are opposing will not care half as much about the issue from their side as you do from yours. Most of the time, most of us bumble around doing stuff that doesn't really matter very much at all. The world operates by bumbling. And bumbling around is very important. You can't hurl yourself into things all the time. Campaigning can be exhausting. But if you feel strongly about something, then you must act. I have done nothing as real in my whole life since. You said you were served with papers by this crop-topped blonde man in an expensive car. And then you sat on the alone. hill together yes. with the other people who had received injunctions and you decided and you decided that you would break the injunction and walk on to the down and the consequences of that were that you were actually sentenced because it was a civil offense so because it's defying a civil injunction you you aren't ever actually arrested okay. mm. we we were arrested on many other occasions for other things but this time, we were simply served packets of papers and then told to come to the High Court in London, which we did. So we broke the injunction on the 4th of July. I have a very short poem called Injunction. Will I read that? Mm -hmm. Yes, please. So Injunction, Sunday, 4th of July, 1993. Over, under, through... I cannot remember how we crossed the fence, but there was dancing on the other side and we were joined.
And so we were all summoned to appear in the High Court in London on Friday the 23rd of July, 1993. And some of us went and some of us didn't. But the place was packed. And this was the statement that I wrote that I didn't read out because I was um, in floods of tears. I was just overwhelmed, I think. I think the judge, it, it was becoming clear that we probably were going to be sent to prison and I just felt really overwhelmed. So I've never read this. My Lord, I would like to explain why I took the decision to defy the High Court injunction of 2nd of July, which forbids me from walking on what was once Twyford Down. My protest is not aimed at you, my lord, and I have no desire to seem disobedient in the eyes of the court. My protest is against the Department of Transport. It is only because they have chosen to employ heavy-handed legal action to try to stifle our protest that I now find myself in conflict with the court. I grew up a few miles from Twyford Down and walked over its beautiful rolling slopes on many occasions. Now Twyford Down is a gaping chasm and the Itchen Valley at its foot has an enormous embankment stretching across it. By this process of turning hills into valleys and valleys into hills, the Department of Transport is levelling our nation's heritage and history. Twyford Down encapsulated a hundred million years of geological history and 4,000 years of human history. I cannot consent to the willful annihilation of such an immense swathe of our heritage by an ephemeral government. To have ceased protesting in the face of this desecration would have meant giving that consent. But I have an even more serious reason for defying the injunction and continuing my protest. The levelling of the landscape that I have witnessed at Twyford Down is not a special case. The Department of Transport intends through its road building programme to repeat the process at more than 1,000 other protected heritage sites and green spaces. It seeks to radically alter the topography of this land, to destroy 160 sites of special scientific interest, 800 scheduled ancient monuments, 12 areas of outstanding natural beauty, and two national parks. In short, the DOT is seeking to remove idiosyncrasy from the landscape, to make one place in Britain just like any other by levelling it off and covering it in tarmac. I cannot sit back and let this happen. The continuing protest at Twyford Down is helping to save these threatened sites. Already the proposed road through Lug Meadows, site of special scientific interest in Herefordshire, has been dropped on environmental grounds. And, of course, we have recently celebrated the victory at Oxley's Woods. 
the wonderful news that this beautiful tract of ancient woodland is to be spared the bulldozer came just a couple of days after the defiance of the injunction at Twyford Down. It has been widely acknowledged, even indirectly, by that fulcrum of the road lobby, the British Road Federation itself, that our continuing protests at Twyford Down played a significant role in the reprieve of Oxley's Woods. Sustaining the protest at Twyford Down has, then, begun to make a difference to the preservation of the beauty spots and historic past of Britain. It is unfortunate that we have had to come into conflict with the law to achieve this, for, as I said, there is no quarrel with the law. Simon Hughes MP said, There is a time and place for peaceful law-breaking, as, on occasion, it is necessary for right to prevail. In this case, right means an intact Britain. It means a Britain which will survive this government with some of its history left and with some of its green fields remaining. I cannot stand idly by whilst the Department of Transport bulldozes through our countryside. Scouring out a huge cutting through Lim Scarp in Kent, or building an embankment the height of a telegraph pole across water meadows in sight of Salisbury Cathedral. This is not progress, it is madness, and I cannot just sit back and watch. Yeah, do you want to know what the judge said? Yeah. Do you want to know what the judge said? Okay, so Mr Justice Elliot, he said, Nothing is more saddening than when a judge is faced with the inevitable task of passing prison sentences on people who are fundamentally decent and motivated by a concern which to them overrides everything else. You have been quick to snatch the martyr's crown and you may find it uncomfortable headgear again we're back to consequences those words of power you know shooting you like a child you know questioning your your motivation and if he knew you he would know that you were not quick it took some time for you to mm. be watching what was happening and then there's where are my people and finding them it's a massive it's minimizing is trying to yeah. And then the martyr's crown, of course, everybody hates a martyr. They're trying to make you, portray you as somehow sort of self-seeking or something like that. It's really wrong-headed. It starts off nicely, it seems sort of, because he called you decent. But uh, you weren't trying to be martyrs. You were just trying to no, save. Not at all. So whilst we were in prison, Becca Lush and I, we got a, an appeal, which we we represented ourselves at. We only did this in order to keep drawing attention to what was going on with the roads programme. But the judge who heard our appeal, whilst he sent us back to prison, he did say something really lovely. So maybe I I might read that, actually. That's probably the best way to end, yes. He sent you back to prison? I thought you got out on the appeal. So you were sentenced for a month? Yes. And you went to prison? Yes. And how long were you in 
there less than a month. Yeah, we were in there for two weeks, so just just under two weeks, 13 days, yeah. You learn all this stuff, right? When you're an activist, I, I didn't know very much about the law at all before all of that, but learnt a huge amount. One of which things is most sentences, you're mostly let out after half your sentence. Hmm. It seems to me that also applies to the criminal law. Correct me if I'm wrong, lawyers listening, but certainly for for the civil injunction, we were let out after half the time, which would be normal. So you were let out not because of the appeal necessarily, right, but just kind of as a matter of course, and yet you you made the appeal representing yourselves because you wanted to continue drawing attention to what was going on at Twyford Downs, not because you wanted to wear the martyr's crown, shall we say, too. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And so we we read out these statements. So it was just Beckett and I. We were taken out of Holloway in a van, and we were put in this cell underneath the court all day, in this people smoking in there all day. And they finally heard our appeal in the evening, in the early evening, and this had been so that it, we we learned. And well, the prison officer said to us, "This is so that you know the publicity will be less with it." So that was very interesting. But they did hear our appeal, and they did pass a judgment. And Lord Justice Hoffman, on Thursday, the twenty ninth of July, nineteen ninety three, said, "I respect the opinions of the appellants. They are frank." straightforward and sincere young women and there is nothing irrational about their conscientiously held views on the need to preserve the countryside. Furthermore, civil disobedience on grounds of conscience is an honourable tradition in this country and those who take part in it may in the end be vindicated by history. So we preferred him. We preferred Lord Justice Hoffman. 